But if we can't talk to each other, we're not gonna make it. Sometimes I feel like I, I've bitten off more than I can chew. Most of the time I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. A face full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it. That's weird, that glass looks half full to me. Eating glass. Eating glass and staring into the abyss. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? It's kind of part of our culture to eat glass. Get some safety goggles next time. Uh. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to Chewing Glass, the show where we talk to developers building in the Solana ecosystem. Today, I have with me Scott, the founder and creator of Fluxbeam, um, aka Fluxbot, the grand champion of the most recent Hyperdrive hackathon. I'm pretty stoked to have you here. You've been in the ecosystem for quite some time. Um, I think I might have heard somewhere online that you, uh, you've you submitted to pretty much every hackathon so far, and then you finally hit the jackpot and just won the whole damn thing. So um, how's it going, man? Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, have great, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. So yeah, look, really looking forward to kind of getting some questions and yeah, seeing what we get up to. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, so the way we uh, start this off is is sort of just to figure out like who you are, like uh, before we get into the whole Solana stuff. So um, just just to kick it off, like uh, how'd you get your start, like in software in general? Like what what what's your backstory here? Like, did you go to school for it? You just some gigabrain twelve year old who just like started to teach themselves to code at an early stage? Like, what's the what's the what's the Scott uh, origin story uh, in software? Yeah, I mean, not quite 12, I'd say probably 14, 15 is when I started. Uh, so I fully self-taught from the ground up. Started originally in kind of some C-sharp stuff, some C++ stuff. Moved quite quickly into Java, and that's kind of where I really got my big start in terms of kind of software development, where I really dug into it. So I think I actually started off way, way back in the day, probably like 15 years ago now. Um, yeah, I think it was the first thing I built was MapleStory uh, private servers in C-sharp. So that's basically taking kind of like old game engines and basically upgrading them, providing additional widgets, doing like essentially kind of what we see now as kind of coding tutorials, but started off basically building all of that and building kind of long, long form content for how to basically module private Minecraft or sorry, not Minecraft, MapleStory server. Um, and then moved into kind of RuneScape, which is where I picked up Java. Um, and that's kind of really the kind of two core languages that I started off in. Oh, nice. Uh, so you started off in the gaming world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a pretty consistent theme, I'd say, over the past kind of, well, especially in the early stage. It was kind of something I'd always go back to. Uh, nowadays, I don't have too much time for the gaming side, but I say for the first kind of five <laughs> years of uh, software development is always a, a huge interest of mine. I think mainly on the automation side rather than the actual gaming side. Don't get me wrong, huge gamer. But for me, it was all about, okay, we've got this this in instance or this world that you can interact with, how can I automate it? And how can I do as little work while I'm asleep and just let these bots kind of run and play for it? Have you ever had conversations with uh, with Jonas on our uh, on our DevRel team around gaming stuff? I bet, bet he'd be interested to know, like he like anybody who talks about games or built game stuff, he's like pretty like excited to to hear those stories. Mm -hmm. So if he doesn't know that, then I'm sure he'll be happy to to hear that there's a another uh gamer um even if it is on the automation side because i'm sure that's like probably not the easiest thing to to build out automation for game i actually can't even really fathom what that even means to be honest but um that's a pretty cool story so you 
you started out in gaming um, and, and you were doing that like before you were even turned 18, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was probably, yeah, I probably started when I was like 14, 15 messing around with that. Um, that lasted, say, probably three, four years. Just having good fun with that. Um, then, yeah, basically bit the bullet around, well, it's called AI now, but machine learning back in the day. It was just kind of very, very early stage machine learning. Um, so I picked up stuff when I was about 16, 17. I actually built out a huge, well, it's, it's huge now, but it was a very kind of small concept back in the day around uh, basically taking uh, roundabouts in cities. And obviously everyone stops at roundabouts so you have, with the traffic lights and stuff in the UK. So we built out, well, I built out a machine learning implementation that takes that camera feed and basically gives you the number plates out on the back. Um, so that was kind of my first foray into machine learning is where I kind of picked up kind of how to do it essentially and really dug my teeth so into mass it. surveillance <laughs> yeah um yeah you might you might hear <laughs> a, a fair bit of that over the over the kind of origin stories as such my my main background for the most part has been either in the machine learning side for what you call essentially mass surveillance or smart cities and then equally on the other side around kind of large-scale distributed systems uh to basically support that infrastructure so did you go? So did you go to university, or are you just all fully self-taught? And no, yeah, cool. no, no, I didn't, didn't um, fully. Just uh, I think pretty much started straight fresh out of eighteen. Got my first coding job when I was eighteen, and then yeah, rest rest is history almost. All right, well then that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about that. All right, so you did some gaming engines. You you were building mass surveillance for your government, um, uh, and then uh, obviously joking, but not really. Um, and then, so what was your so you're you, you turn eighteen or or whatever, and like you just you're getting your first job. Um, like what what was what was your uh, actual first coding engineering job? Like your paid job? So it started off. I actually went to start because obviously no uni, so I didn't really have any credentials to speak of. So I actually had to start right at the bottom. So my first job was in a call center, just um, troubleshooting till systems or point of sale systems. Within a year, I was in their UAT team, so that's from my kind of help desk line one. And I moved up into essentially just testing their new software releases. And from there, quickly jumped into kind of a junior software developer role for them. Um, so that probably lasted about a year or two I was there, I think. And then moved into okay. like a, a startup company, which I say is probably where I really started my kind of engineering path. Prior to that, it was like, okay, yeah, this sounds fun. I'll do this for a little bit. But that was kind of the real kind of game-changing moment is joining that small company. What was it? Um, so it started off as a data center hosting provider. So like, although there was coding involved to start with, it was mainly around kind of like controlling AC units or controlling a fire suppression system. But for the most part, I was actually just going around building small data centers for clients. Um, so running around with cables and servers and stuff at middle of the night, building all of that up. And that kind of gave me a really good fundamental understanding of how hardware a from a building it and then equally operating it side works. I think that's kind of really done me wonders over the past couple of years. Uh, I know everyone's kind of keen on cloud, but we still prefer the kind of bare metal implementations. Yeah, that's interesting. Like it's and like I think a lot of the younger engineers are coming out like they've never maybe never even seen a like an actual cable before to their computer because you're like you grow like you're growing up wired it like you've got an iPad in your hand now learning to code on that thing and never even seen a cable in your life. So there is something, cause I mean, I did like, um, all those Cisco classes whenever I was in high school and like, just like the tangible, like seeing these things and learning about that stuff adds this sort of like 
additional understanding about how these sort of networks and systems work. So I can see how that would be helpful. So, so you were doing the, you were actually doing the physical work around, um, these data centers. Um, did you go to a software job from there or did you continue on sort of doing the more physical sort of infrastructure stuff or like what that looked like? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story actually through the kind of hardware stuff we were doing, working for a variety of clients at the time. Um, and kind of, I mentioned earlier on that I built this AMPR system for scanning number plates. Just so happened one of our clients, uh, was a out of home digital advertiser. So they're quite interested in this software, obviously being able to hyper-target adverts to people sitting there waiting in traffic with this huge screen in front of them was quite a cool kind of implementation idea. So they approached us and basically said, look, do you want to, do you want to kind of put this into a production implementation? Said yes. Uh, and then spent probably six months, but taking this kind of very early prototype into a production implementation. And then we rolled that out across pretty much every roundabout in London. So that was kind of the first big chunk of work that we did. But from there... What code was, what language were you developing in at that time? That was all Java. Java? Yeah, Java. Okay. And then we moved it to Golang kind of couple, four or five years later when, when Go uh, Beta came out, because I think that's my program You're choice. a Go Maxi? Yes. Yeah, I love it. I think it's... Yeah. That's I thought. I thought. I thought I've seen that before. <laughs> no, it's it's the cleanest and quickest language I think to use, especially from building. Um, I mean, like most of my experiences in kind of a startup environment, so most of it's tailored to move fast and, and break things, and then kind of go through with testing afterwards. And it just really fit that bill. Don't get me wrong. If we need to use Rust or we need to use C or Java, still do it. Uh, even some Erlang or Pull, we're pretty happy with. But for the most part, ninety percent of our stuff's in Go. I don't, I don't want to jump too far forward, but like throughout th up until that point, had you had exposure to like any low level languages? Uh, no, not really to be fair. No, I mean, I just pick it up where, where, and as needed. Uh, I mean, dab hand with a hex editor. So I'd spent a lot of time kind of just editing binary files with hex editors and basically all the way up and down the stack. It really depended on what the hardware we were using. So whether it's like a ILO device from Dell or something, I had to use Erlang or Perl or whatever it may be for their scripting language. So jack of all trades in that regard man, man that's yeah that's pretty rare like a lot of software engineers especially in the early days like that they, they just like pick a language and like that's the thing like to be pivoting around to all just basically based on whatever was needed like you know like i've seen i've worked in engineering companies where somebody preferred a certain language and the code base was in something else and they just literally wanted to rewrite the whole thing in the language because that's the one that they liked but like uh it's, it's pretty impressive to just be like you know all right i'll learn that thing and and do that thing based on the needs of it so after so after so what happened after that um after uh building that so that kind of led to essentially what i'd be focusing on for probably the next six to eight years uh, so we built out this initial proof of concept. I was the only developer in the company at the time. And I basically hired in as a kind of pseudo scripter slash helping out with the data center side. From that, um, obviously that went quite well, uh, got rolled out across London. Uh, from there, we got introduced into a few of the kind of large blue chip advertising companies in the UK or, or worldwide. Um, so like Sky, JC Deco, and a few of the other kind of providers that do the software side. So for the next kind of six to eight years, we basically ended up um, scaling out this development team. Well, I scaled out this development team from just one person to, I think, before I left, it was about 12 developers all in all. And the company was about 35 people in total, mainly over those. Oh, and you were there for, you You basically built that prototype in the beginning and like that team grew that big and scaled that out. Man, 
that's actually a long stint at a working at a company. I don't know if I could, eight years. That's the, that's quite the uh, the longevity for working at a single mm. company. But I mean, like, I guess it was interesting to be building something like to literally scale for an entire city. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it was mostly trial by fire. I think that's probably why it's so fun is because it was a brand new startup. It was kind of me from the ground up building it. There was a lot of challenges, a lot of technical stuff that we had to understand, especially around building a team or even just managing a team itself. So there was always kind of these ever going challenges that I, I found really enjoyable. Um, and obviously scaling the team, you get to work with, with really great people. We had an insanely good kind of high performance team. For the most part, I like having maybe team split into a max of about seven developers per team uh, before it gets a bit unwieldy. So we had two of those teams running. Uh, yeah, it was, it was just great fun, to be honest. And um, for the most part, we weren't doing anything kind of surveillance wise. We actually pivoted into building and supporting our own digital outdoor advertising infrastructure. So basically you've got, I think Sky's estate was maybe 4,000 screens at the time. You had all of these and we were kind of basically pioneered real time advertising of whereby you've got all these different screens and at any moment in time, you could just pop up a new advert rather than having to go through what has historically quite a long process. It often takes months to go from getting your creative ready to getting it on a digital advertising screen. So we really focused on kind of that time to delivery in the advertising sector. But then that led to kind of huge amounts of challenges of getting these 30 gigabyte files down onto these screens in time. And um, so it's really kind of where we kind of focused our niche and served us quite well. We did some cool stuff with QR codes back in the day before they were wildly popular. So it's kind of nice to see all this technology slowly cycling back around into kind of mainstream adoption now. Yeah, that's uh and and now they're being used in uh in crypto for wallets. So that's pretty cool. So you so you spent that stint there like before you got into the into the web three space, crypto space, did you uh did you you ended that? Did you go anywhere else like in the in the web two world uh before you made that leap? Yeah, yeah. I hopped over into kind of a job. It was I'd say I was there for maybe two years. Um, but this is really what kind of where I got a taste of the, like you say, large scale surveillance uh, world. So uh, over there, I was uh, kind of, well, uh, I can't remember what my title was, like engineering lead or something, pseudo CTO <laughs> engineering lead. But <laughs> basically I was in charge of building out a high performance pipeline ingestion stream for all of this data. So see, you've got a citywide, um, let's take Dubai, for example, you've got thousands of screens, thousands of sensors, varying different aspects of kind of functionality from them. So you might have a bunch of old cameras, you might have a bunch of new cameras that do a lot of the stuff on the camera for you. And our task was basically to take all of that data in and then provide a consistent, essentially monitoring plane for these governments to use. So it take a existing CCTV camera, like you see at a petrol station, we'd overlay multiple machine learning models on the background of that stream data to provide kind of tracking inference, where they might be going, route planning, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was kind of a, a good two years and I spent that. For the most part, I think that's probably why I'm now in crypto. I really didn't sit too well with me <laughs> quite how much data they have on us or quite how much we're being watched. Um, so yeah, that, that really kind of drove me into crypto. And it's an interesting one actually, because well, as part of that job, uh, towards the end, I was actually asked to do kind of 12 months deep dive into blockchain and how it could potentially be used for enterprise at scale, but more specifically smart cities with all of this data jingling around. 
at, and from there I actually discovered Solana. And what technologies were you looking at when you were doing that? Was it, were you like, was this Ethereum based stuff or you just like look at like holistically a blockchain in general? It was, it was holistic for the most part. I mean, like for us, it was kind of data availability, global state. So the ability to sync large amounts of data globally across the world without having huge amounts of own infrastructure set up. And sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why uh, <laughs> I actually found Solana through this kind of 12 month process. I think halfway through Solana kind of oh, came okay. out in its, its initial launch. So yeah, being, being a big fan of Solana ever since it's launched, uh, we were looking kind of other pseudo, uh, kind of, I'd call them blockchains, but they're realistically kind of web two with a blockchain wrapper. Um, right. There was yeah, a few others as well, but I think Solana for the most part after we did this deep dive was, was the main one that we saw the most potential with from there was like, well, if I like it that much, why don't I, I jump over uh, into web three and start building in it. So throughout that, so throughout your other, like, like before, like we get too deep into the Solana portion, like throughout that sort of journey of yours, like, were you like, before they asked you to do that 12 month deep dive in, in blockchain, were you like, I'm, I'm assuming you're in tech, you're following along, were you like degenerate trading? Were you doing Bitcoin, Ethereum? Like, were you involved like in that aspect of things prior to, to, to being asked to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say I was around probably since Bitcoin was about 32 bucks around that. So me and my friend used to, to mine it on our off time, uh, when you could still mine it without a custom ASIC. So you had a kind of a few PCs that we'd found from yeah. work, just sitting in the background, mining the stuff. Um, and then I think probably really started diving into Ethereum around the ICO day. So we're probably 2014, uh, jumped in there, started buying and selling blocks of dirt in the, uh, the ICOs, obviously Dogecoin launched around that time as well. I remember that <laughs> the one that I didn't buy into, um, quite annoying, but yeah, so I've been in Ethereum, I'd say for a while, I mean, I've done a variety of different kind of consultancy gigs in Ethereum. It's never been something I really enjoyed. Just purely because I find Solidity probably one of the most awful languages to work in. But yeah, being pretty active in crypto since about 2014, kind of on and off. Let's uh let's dive into some of this Solana stuff. Um, so you 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 experienced Solana throughout that 12 month deep dive. Like when did you when did you sort of like get active like on Solana, whether it was on Twitter or whether it was in Discord, like was that like in 2020 or was it like late 2020, mid 2020, or was it like early 2021? Like what what's the time frame here for you? Yeah, I, th I think it was about early 2021. Um, I think like I'd, I'd been kind of looking at it, toying around with it, but hadn't really jumped jumped in until about yeah, I think maybe February 21 was kind of the time where I set up a kind of a positive goal to try and get into Solana, start going into the communities, really starting embedding myself into the development communities as well. Yeah. And those were, those were pretty tough days. Like, like I joined and probably met, like, I mean, I, I was like aware and like involved with Solana through a bunch of different channels. But when I joined in like May of 2021, like all we had were the core documentation. The only way to get information was to go into discord and ask the core engineers who would tell you to go look at the tests if you wanted to figure something out. That was basically the DevX of the early days. Um, so like, how, how did you actually like learn, like, don't tell me you learned through the Paul, S, Paul X escrow tutorial like everybody else out there? No, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of reading through source code. So I think probably spent good, better part of two months really kind of getting to grips with the actual core Solana validator, how it works, kind of. The, the core execution runtime as well from there messed around with a few kind of different smart contracts obviously this was a little bit before anchor um so still messing around pre that 
Obviously, when Anchor came in, that was an absolute godsend. So I made everything 10 times easier to build on. Yeah, we hear that a lot on the show. Like, it's, this is like, I mean, Armani was essentially trying to solve his own problems, but then he solved problems for an entire ecosystem of developers. I think now, like, I think I saw a chart recently. I can't remember where it came across, but like, I think it's about the existing smart contracts on Solana right now. It's about 50 50 between Rust and like Anchor based smart contracts. And it, it could be that Anchor might have just recently overtook like Rust. Um, and some of those Rust smart contracts could just be legacy. I think the majority of people now are pretty much all building on Anchor. Uh, but it's crazy that just like a, a simple tool to solve somebody's problems turned into an entire framework mm. that like pretty much propelled in an ecosystem to be able to develop uh, faster, more efficiently and, and all this stuff. So, so that's pretty cool to hear. So what were you doing? Like, so you were, you basically just like, you're obviously just a tinkerer. Like, I'm going to go figure out what this thing is and how it works. Like, and, and to sort of tie it into like, from what I've heard, have you submitted to every Solana hackathon since, in, since 2021? Yeah. yeah. Every, every Solana hackathon. You never won a prize? No, no. Everything we came, we came close in the Helios hackathon. Um, I think it's about a year and a half ago now. Um, but yeah, no, this is the first one or well, the first year where we started actually kind of placing in these, these hackathons. But yeah, prior to that, mainly tinkering, I'd say. Um, for the most part, it was in the arbitrage side. Um, really kind of dug into that. Obviously, coming from looking at the validator, it's like, oh, okay, there's some interesting uh, MEV to be done here. So that's really, I think, probably where we got our start was, okay, how do we, how do we start doing ARB on this chain? Who's who's we? Yeah, so yeah, there's there's three of us who've kind of set up a, a little company um, that kind of was doing all this tinkering around. Those guys more business ops focused, and me kind of leading up the tech side. So, do you want to try to go through if your brain serves you properly, like the list of like sort of projects you were submitting to the hackathons along the way? Like anything, it doesn't have to be all of them. Just like maybe some of the ones that um, that you thought were cool, and just the things you were exploring. Because I think one of the major points here. And I ran on about this all the time is like people enter a hackathon, they lose and like, and they don't win anything, not realizing that groups like Tensor took two years to nail what they nailed or somebody like you who just kept persistently submitting until you eventually became grand champion uh, without winning any pre previous prizes. I think people don't realize the kind of grit and grind it takes to be successful, like in, in web three, just like businesses in general. So um, what, what other projects had you been like working on, um, throughout these other like hackathons and submissions? Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'd say probably some of the standout ones that I, I thought were, were really good. Um, obviously not, not good enough to win the hackathons, but I thought implementation wise, very, <laughs> very interesting. And we're seeing some of this actually play out kind of two years later. Now we're kind of getting into it a little bit more, but the first one was our, uh, aggregated NFT platform called Liquify NFT. So that basically take all of the existing marketplaces and provide you the best price for buying or selling in a kind of a, a Jupiter-esque kind of UI. Um, so that was a, something we did probably a year and a half ago. Uh, we also did uh, DGEN CDN, which is tackling the whole issue around kind of finding out where metadata is. So it's basically a CDN cache for all of the metadata on chain on Solana, which provides kind of everything from dynamic metadata all the way through to just your static stuff. Um, so that was more of a developer tool. Another big one we did was Blockhost. Uh, so this was, well, probably, yeah, maybe almost, but probably one of the starting ones we built on. Uh, so this is essentially a concept of whereby we use Solana to be our main logic chain while holding our state. 
And then we provide decentralized nodes um, to provide storage to users, um, either from a locally CDN kind of cache. So say it could be in your local house rather than to go all the way up to Cloudflare or your local data center. It just goes to your local node if you had the content available. This is mainly to kind of solve one of our own internal problems. We actually started off looking at meta metaverses in Solana and of how we could kind of basically bridge that gap. Obviously, everyone's like, oh, you want a 4K real-time million people in a room metaverse. Like back in 2021, that was never going to happen with the infrastructure we had in place. Just physically impossible to get that amount of assets right. onto your PC in a, a reasonable amount of time. So for us, it's like, okay, well, let's solve the storage layer first. And then on top of that, we built what's called Hourglass, which is essentially a drag-and-drop metaverse creator whereby I can support kind of any local caching content and support, I think, up to about 100 players in an instance. And so that was really what, kind of where we started dabbling, I think, more on the client side with Solana rather than kind of on the back-end Rust side. Prior to winning re the recent Hyperdrive hackathon, you have been here for over two years, like roughly two and a half years at least, but submitting to these hackathons. Why? Like what made you stick around and keep doing what you're doing? Um, even though like you also, you, I mean, you can call it failure. You can call it just like not the right time or the right product or whatever it is, but like, why, like what makes you, why are you still here? Like what, what's the whole, like, you know, like this is an important question and I, and I think you're a prime example because of your history on Salon and them, like the, the amount of time you've been in the ecosystem. Um, what, what made you stay? I, th I think it's probably a two-part question. I'd say for the for the most part, it was because we I just enjoy coding on Solana. I enjoy the whole hackathon aspect of it, the whole challenge aspect of standing a product up in three months. That really always has appealed to me. So win or lose, it's like, hey, look, we've got three months. Let's let's see if we can build something. But secondly to that, I think it's around product market fit. For the most part, I think when we were going through all of these different iterations, different ideas, they were good and they had users, but there there wasn't any kind of true market fit with any of these so for us it's like well we want to build something that people are actually going to use that's going to be useful to the community and not just something that we think as developers is cool but perhaps everyone else doesn't think it's cool so for us it was really trying to find what that was and we've had so many ideas go through kind of the company over the past two years that we just kind of kept at it i think finally hit on something that both provides utility for users and is great fun to build on and backs onto kind of a lot of the building blocks we've been building for two years. I mean, we're, we build kind of in a very modular way. So there's never anything really wasted from going into the hackathons. Like all of the stuff we've built over the past two years are in little boxes that we can just pick up and place into a new product. And hey, we've got a full NFT integration or a full decentralized infrastructure implementation or even the arbitrage side, which is coming into the Fluxbeam uh, implementation now of where we can take, take all the work we did, the coding IDLs back in the day for Orca and all these different protocols and that's actually super useful now because now we don't have to spend six months doing it all over again so you think it'd be fair to say that like you you guys just like the Solana tech the global state all the things about it and you were pretty much just going to keep building until you figured out like until you hit that success um do you, do you think you like if, if you didn't win this recent hackathon would you give it another shot oh absolutely yeah i mean we've got three or four back burner ideas that are just sitting there waiting uh so yeah i mean if, if we didn't win this one it'd be the next one or the one after that uh we, yeah definitely not short of ideas this side yeah i mean like that's sort of a, a bit of an incredible inspirational piece of uh 
of information right there. You know, like not every, I, I said this the other day, it's like, I'm wishing luck to all the teams out there like raising because not everybody has the guts to even do that or the energy or like whatever to be a founder. Um, and especially people aren't like rejection sucks. So if you, if you think like one thing we see in hackathons is people put their blood, sweat and tears into these things. And when they lose naturally a human's like upset because you like, you are just so absorbed in it. Um, so a lot of times teams will sort of just be like, they'll go, they won't continue because like it's a huge letdown because you just put all that in. So to hear how many times like if like you've lost hackathons, won zero prizes, and then they come back with a sort of like nice little uh, hero arc here and, and win the grand champion um, prize is, is pretty awesome. So with that said, let's let's talk about let's talk about Flux Beam. I would say let's talk about what the inspiration for it was, but I'm pretty sure that like uh, I kind of already know. But like because like this uh, this this style of thing, although they don't have like on Ethereum, obviously there's Unibot. Um, but like but like you were one of the first adopters of Token Twenty Two. Like you, there's also an incredible tool set inside there. But like, what was the inspiration for you to be like? We're gonna do that thing on Solana for this hackathon. Like, why, why uh, Flux Beam, um, and why a Telegram trading bot? Mm. No, it actually came out of kind of a bit of a left field, uh, to be honest. I mean, obviously, we've seen Unibot that kind of came out around the time kind of we were ideating about what we wanted to do. But actually, I was up in the Lake District in the UK over a weekend, um, and I really needed to move crypto. Um, need to move some stuff around existing positions, but I didn't have my keys with me. I didn't have kind of any access to a desktop or a laptop to do so. So it was kind of like one of those things about, oh crap, like it'd be really nice to be able to just manage this through my phone without the clunky interface of having to go through the kind of initial wallet. So having my seed phrase inside a phone can be stolen or whatever it may be. Obviously various security issues with, with carrying around stuff on your phone. So it was kind of a, an intermediary of whereby we go after, well, I still want the flexibility of accessing maybe a, a portion of the crypto ecosystem, but without all of the kind of concerns around having keys carried with me or anything like this. So seeing Unibot and we're like, well, that's a, a wicked idea, especially for F, obviously you don't need the speed. So it worked really well in their instance. And it's like, okay, well, can we, can we build something like that for Solana? Obviously there's been a fair few attempts in kind of discord and stuff like that. So it's taking all that inspiration. So a big fan of bots. So anything where you can bot or automate stuff right up my street. So yeah, dug in and then really found that it was just super useful, to be honest. I mean, I started building it. We initially integrated kind of like Jupyter or something initially and just a basic swap functionality. And so I, I use it all the time. So <laughs> we'll extend that. Okay, we need lending now. That's really useful to have. We've got all the real-time lending alerts. So if there's getting close to liquidation, you're not just kind of stuck up a mountain with no way of being able to remediate it. It's like, okay, cool. Two buttons press. Um, I'm back in a healthy account state again. Yeah. And I, to be honest, like I was one of the more exciting parts for me was to actually see your, like your uh, inventory of tooling within there. And also like, I think just going into the, the, to the, the token 22, um, like token creator of your tool set and showing the extensions with checkboxes that actually, and then adding the parameters in there, like almost just right out of the gate, visually teaches you what the power of those token 22 is. So it was pretty cool to see that. And also like for all the listeners, um, it's fluxbeam.xyz. Like there's a, there's a wide variety of, of tools available for you. 
I recently somebody asked me, Hey, how do I airdrop a bunch of uh, tokens? And I was like, check out Fluxbeam. That'll probably do the trick for you. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. I think you're also probably partially responsible for the uptick in meme coins because you made it so easy for people to start launching them <laughs> because, uh, we all know that, um, all of a sudden out of nowhere, after your project went live, we started to see about a hundred different meme tokens being launched. So, Hey man, people having fun on chain. It's all good, but, um, it's super cool. Were you shot? Were you surprised to have won the grand champion of that? Yes. Yeah. Was not, was not expecting it, especially kind of from our, our prior, um, placements. It was kind of like, oh yeah, we'll give it a shot. We'll see what happens. I mean, I was at the, um, at breakpoint anyway. So it's just kind of a nice thing to do. We knew it was going to be announced around breakpoint. Uh, so for, Hey, why not? Let's, let's give it a go. But yeah, totally came out of left field for us. Was not expecting it. Was not expecting the, uh, the amount of users that, entailed it as well because we had a fair few scaling issues <laughs> as soon as that stuff went live super cool um congratulations on the win like like i said uh, already a couple times already like it, it takes a lot to just like continuously try and and not even like place at all and just have a backlog of ideas to be like all right on to the next one so um congrats on that um and just sort of if if there's anything if there's any other information that you want to give around like Fluxbeam or just like give a give a sort of like a, a TLDR on on what what you've built and and what you're trying to do like in the future with this and and what it enables. Yeah, so I mean Fluxbeam itself came out of the desire to use Token Twenty Two for one of our other projects. Um, so we've got a. Uh, it's going to be kind of fully open source. It's more kind of a, a proof of concept of how we could build fully on-chain idle games on Solana. And so we've built out kind of a huge repo of kind of tooling and contracts to be able to support that. But the one thing we were missing was the ability to create slightly more useful tokens. See, token V1 is great, but very limited. You can transfer, approve, and burn. That's about it. Whereas token 22, we dived into it probably eight months ago, I think now, maybe a little bit little bit later on and it kind of ticked every single box we needed for some of our upcoming plans so we're like well hey no one's really championing this yet at the time it said it was going to be announced um, and launched in 2022 Uh, so (laughs) a little bit delayed in terms of official official release but yeah we just had john chinkwe on here who um, was one of the big contributors to that and when we joked around um the whole idea that like he thought that that was actually going to be launched in in 22 and uh, it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we took, we took him as word or the docs at their word of when it was kind of giving indicative release dates. So <laughs> I think, I think we panicked a few people, um, by actually taking them as, as, as gospel, but yeah, we saw, we saw it was coming up for release. We weren't really seeing much being talked about in terms of the ecosystem adoption. See at the time compressed NFTs were being kind of super, super focused on. Um, and yeah, we saw it as almost kind of a, a challenge internally. Uh, with with devs at heart, so being able to champion a core protocol and actually use kind of some of our experience to then bring that into the ecosystem was really exciting. So we built out a full suite end to end tooling uh, from token creation all the way to your know, pool creation, airdrops, like you said, and a few other kind of metadata management tools. And then realized, oh god, like this is going to be a nightmare to get actually adopted into the ecosystem. So spent better part of kind of six months <laughs> going around chasing various different uh, integrators. Obviously, we had great support from Jupiter. Can't thank them enough for kind of how much they've done on their side. Um, but really kind of helped us push that together along with kind of a fair few of the wallets and the analytics teams. Got kind of an initial base 
implementation of Token 22. We did a few kind of DEX integrations for people. So we launched Fluxbeam, which is its own Token 22 DEX. So that has kind of been a, a large, large focus on in this year, but mainly for the most part to enable some of the stuff we want to be doing over the next couple of months to next year. Um, and then from that, that's just spun out a whole ream of ideas as well. Obviously, as Token 22 is getting adopted more and more into the ecosystem, it's opening up more doors. So we recently got OpenBook integrated or we're kind of 99% integrated. I think we're just waiting for a merge to go through on there. But that basically opens up order book abilities for it. And then we've got a few contracts coming up, um, hopefully in the next, I don't know, next year or so um, around kind of various ideas. A, want to tackle NFT um, royalty issues, obviously for the most part of the past year, it's been, you need a wrapper, whereas now we can actually do this at a core protocol layer. So there's really cool stuff we can do there. And then on, on the on-chain gaming side, this really opens up what people can do with these tokens in terms of the transfer hooks or transfer fees. It, it actually kind of allows you to gamify some of this tokenomics rather than us launching the same token over and over again with slightly different allocations um, and people expecting a different result. Whereas this, yeah, it just opens up the playing field for everyone. Um, so really been an exciting journey to get all of that integrated. Yeah, I mean, like, I think this sort of stuff is super appreciated. Like, it's it's always the early adopters that sort of inspire, like, the next generation of innovation on a blockchain. And, like, being, in, like, it, it's a it's somewhat of a risk, like, to, to put your whole philosophy behind, like, this brand new thing um, and, and wondering if anybody's even going to care. Uh, but, like, obviously, people cared enough to to, to give you guys the, the top prop top prize for the hackathon so um that's that's super cool um so a lot of to, to round out the show there's a couple questions i want to ask you and and like you can ask them you can interpret this however you want and so in your experience like what what sucks about building on solana like what 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 needs improvement for you like what is sort of the bane of your existence um as you're building out well as you've built out every project you've built and also what you're building out now, like what, what have you seen out there that's still just like a thorn in your side for Solana development? Uh, it's it's got to be dependency management. I mean, the amount of time we waste, <laughs> I, mean, I was doing- Never heard that move before. <laughs> I was doing it this afternoon, even so that's why it's kind of fresh off the press, but yeah, it's, it's just chaos managing all these dependencies. And especially because we've been building for so long, we've got slightly older contracts and stuff that's not in anchor. So upgrading that into kind of getting to SPL 17 or whatever it is that's out now, has been an absolute nightmare. It's just all, whenever something new comes out crate-wise, it's always an uphill slog. So that's a bit of a nightmare. I'd say everything else is is pretty good. I think like we, we're in a unique position because we don't, although we've got front ends and stuff, most of our stuff is in Golang. So we build all of our own tooling, all of our own decoders and stuff like that. So that never has really been an issue for us. But I think maybe another abs abstraction layer would be nice on the JavaScript side of just a really simple kind of just point and click implementation for various different protocols, almost like another plugin system, I think would be nice. But yeah, I mean, no real other pain points. I mean, RPCs, but that's kind of like, yeah, that's just what you have to deal with. We get the bad, poorly defined errors a lot on this, on the show. Like people saying that like, like obviously it's a pain point where people don't know what errors actually mean. That's, that's, that's been one of the ones that a lot of people point out to us. Yeah, I, mean, I would say that's getting better now with kind of the RPC abstraction. Like obviously, if you're using core RPC layer, it's, it's still a nightmare and all of that management of that is, is a bit crazy. But with some of the new DAS APIs and stuff like that coming out from some of the providers, it actually helps a lot with those issues. Like we've recently integrated 
uh, provider that actually helps and solves all of those errors for us. So we just get a nice JSON API response with exactly what that error is, and then we can take that and pass it through to our users. All right. Now we always start with the bad. Now, like, uh, let's talk about again, open to interpretation. Like what's the, what's the best part? Like you can, this can be relative to something else or just for you. Like what, what, what's, what's the good, what's the good stuff about Solana building on it or like just anything? Yeah. I'd say, I'd say probably the two biggest things for me, uh, a would be 400 millisecond block times was just speed in general. Like it's, it's a game changer. You can get Obviously, we're not quite close to native, well, not quite native to Web two, but you can get pretty pretty damn close. And with some good UX, so you can really fill that small kind of time delay. So I think the speed is pretty much spot on for what we want to do. Uh, Four hundred milliseconds sits in that nice kind of time frame of whereby it's not too long of where users will notice, but it's not kind of Web two speeds. So that's that's a really nice in position where it is there. But the, the, I think the main thing is probably the global state. And the amount of time, especially in kind of the previous companies that I've spent dealing with globally synchronizing state across continents, it, it's just unfathomable how much time and money and energy we've spent debugging and resolving a lot of that stuff. So just to have that built into the platform and go, okay, I deploy, as long as I've got IPC provider coverage and I've got a performant front end, I don't have to worry about scaling issues. And I think that's the biggest one for us, realistically, is we can deploy once. We know it's going to propagate across global state. Anyone who connects is obviously going through IPv6, so get routed to the closest node. And yeah, it, it just works perfectly. Like not having to manage those backend pipelines anymore is just a dream, really. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's it's good to hear these things. Like I've always loved to hear like the negative stuff and the positive stuff because like, you know, it starts to give you a paint a picture. Like especially when I have guests on here and you start to hear the same thing over and over again. Your answer was a uh, what. Like the, the dependency hell has, has definitely been brought up before and, and there's a handful of others, but you start to learn, um, and, and you start to know where to improve. Like I, I, I view negative feedback as like really just a starting point to fix the damn thing. Um, so, and, and I think that's why like this Solana ecosystem has been so successful, you know, like if, if something's wrong, somebody's going to complain about it on Twitter and it's usually Mert. Um, and then, um, then, then somebody eventually goes and fixes it. Um, but yeah, so to round it off, final question for you. Um, and what we like to do is like, we, you get, we're going to assume the audience here is you're, there's going to be a handful of people new to the ecosystem, new developers, maybe ones who are about to get started on Solana or ones that are thinking about getting started. What advice do you give uh, to this group of people that are, are are like sort of getting ready or already have dipped their toes into Solana to just like um, to be successful in this ecosystem? Because there's a hundred different ways that that this could go. So curious what like what your sort of gut instinct is to to tell this new batch of of developers looking into Web three. Mm, no, that's a great question. Um, I think I think it's always great to be more vocal. I think that's something we struggled with early on is not being vocal enough about what we're building. I mean, like you said, the Solana community, especially the dev community is absolutely insane, like unparalleled in terms of kind of how much you support or support you get from there. So I'd say really be vocal on Twitter, get your product out there. Don't just focus purely on the building, like although that's super important, I think getting it out and getting that feedback from other people and getting people to help contribute is a really kind of beneficial thing that Solana ecosystem and community offers. And then equally from that, I think maybe just kind of take it piece by piece, 
really trying to get understand those fundamentals right at the core to start with around kind of how accounts are structured, how mutable accounts work, how the Solana stack works, and it just serves you dividends kind of going forward. Uh, I think probably where a lot of people maybe skip over and go straight into maybe the JavaScript side, but I really think sitting on the Rust side and really understanding that accounts model is probably the biggest benefit long term. Yeah. I, I mean, I asked the question, like when I just talked to people and, and just uh, like throughout my days, like what's the hardest, I even tweet these things sometimes, like what's the harder part about Solana? It's like you have on one side, you have Solana and then the other side you have Rust. Mm. Um, and typically the majority of people will say that the, it depends on who you ask, but like, I think more often than not, even though my poll was a little bit slightly different, I, I don't know why that was so skewed, but when you ask people, it's like, understanding accounts is like critical to like learning salon like the rust is just a language it doesn't have like a, a it's not something unusual to most people it's just a new language uh, that happens to be low level but accounts unless you've ever built on linux systems you probably have no idea especially when people come from ethereum they'll come to me and be like hey how do i get started on uh, solana like i'm coming from ethereum like Step one, forget everything you know, and then go read about accounts. Yeah. Uh, because like, and you can, I've been talking to some people where you can draw some comparisons to the two. And we actually have like a a, a Solana course for um, Rust or a Solana course for EVM developers. That's going to help that a little bit, like sort of side-by-side -side comparisons for like how you would do something on Solidity and how you would do it on Solana. So that might help. But, but in general, it's a totally different like beast totally different runtime, totally different like programming model. So it's your best bet to just like reset your brain and then go figure out how accounts work. And then that'll probably save you. Would you say that's fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but that account subtraction model is, is kind of the key, key implementation. I'd say even if like you haven't done Rust before, like look at the Python Seahorse libraries as well. I mean, we've had great success onboarding some developers through that. So they start off in Python where most Web2 devs can code in Python or have had some experience. So it eases that transitionary period of rather than trying to learn Solana and Rust and everything else. It's like, okay, cool. I've got my known language. I just need to focus on the bits that I don't know, which is the Solana bit. And that really easily imports you over into Rust when you do want to kind of do a little bit more complex. I was so excited when you said that because we hadn't really had any signal that that had actually worked because that was the initial original like like intention. Um, like this was created by Nanon um, and it's now been overtaken by like uh, Anvit from Phantom and, and Callum and some support from DevRel to, re to revamp it and build, um, I think it's seahorse.university. Like if you wanna learn Solana smart contracts via um, Python. And then like there's another group called Web3 Builders Alliance that are currently in the process of building this for TypeScript. It's called Poseidon. Uh, they announced it lightly a couple places around there. So. I mean, really, like if you capture Python developers and JavaScript developers, there's 28 million developers globally. You probably capture 95% of them um, if you get Python and, and TypeScript under your belt. So that's the goal. It's onboarding. And the real the real thing is it's all a Trojan horse to get you to learn Rust and Anchor. So like, don't think you're going to be writing Python and, uh, and, and TypeScript for the rest of your lives, if I have anything to do with it anyways. Best stepping stones that we've seen so far is, yeah, get them in on TypeScript to Python, and then yeah, slowly wean them off that onto onto Rust seems to be the best way to do it. Exactly. All right, Scott. I, I think I didn't mention you. Like a, Scott, aka Cloak Dev on Twitter. If you see him around, give him a follow. Um, and thanks for joining, man. 
Pleasure to have you. Congratulations on the hyperdrive victory and looking forward to seeing what you guys build. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on.